0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome again to the Christian Life Center. As you just heard, my name is Ben, and I am excited to be able to wrap up uh, this sub-series that we're in as we continue through the Um, Hopefully all of you had a wonderful and amazing Thanksgiving and maybe you're a few pounds heavier. There's no judgment here. We're glad. Don't worry. New Year's resolutions are right around the corner so you can just take off those pounds then. Um, But we are glad that you're here. As Megan did say, I'm pretty excited for Oxford's First Friday that is happening this Friday. We would love for you to be a part of that and just come out and support I think it's awesome that the the town of Oxford is inviting us to come out and actually to sing about who Jesus is. So that's pretty exciting. do a tree lighting right at about six, and then they've asked us to sing Silent Night. This is like Megan said. This is our actual fifth year of doing that. Well, actually, it's our fourth year, but because of COVID last year, they didn't have it. So we are pretty excited for it. So we would love to have you be a part of that if you're interested in doing that. So, uh, like I said, I am excited to be able to wrap up our Parables kind of series. Where we've been is uh, over the last year, more than a year, we've been kind of working through the Book of Luke. We find ourselves in Luke chapter 17. So We've come a long way, we still have a little ways to go, um, but as we've been going through this book of Luke, we've been kind of pulling out sub-series, really more than anything, so that we don't get like lost in where we are, and so that we are continued to be engaged in what we're doing. So we finished a couple weeks ago a series on parables, and then this next kind of grouping of, of teachings, and this will continue for the next several weeks, even into the next series on Christmas, and then the next one into January, there's these kind of uh, random collection, if you will, of teachings of Jesus. So uh, we we did parables kind of because the, the teachings that we're looking at are kind of like parables but they're kind of not, so that's why we named it parables kind of. So I'm excited to share with you uh, with that today. Um, Hopefully, uh, again, you had a wonderful and awesome uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, For my wife and I, it was awesome to be able to see and visit my parents up in Rhode Island. Um, And it's always a wonderful and terrible time to see family, right? Like it's always, there's always a little bit of chaos Uh, Just at one point and at one moment in our trip, um, I have a special needs nephew and I'm sitting working on my message and I just kind of look over and there is my special needs nephew um, completely butt naked, like (laughs) there he is and like all of him and He's got some sensory issues. He's, he's got a little bit of a trouble where he just really doesn't like clothing. I tried to explain to him that doesn't mean much, but he didn't really listen. And uh, and then I asked him, I said, do you have anything you want to say to my church? And he goes, nope. So I would say hey on... Uh, my family sends greetings, but uh, apparently my nephew does not send any greetings. He just has nothing to say. But uh, like, like I said, I hope that you had a great time, that you were able to really pause and, and consider what it is that you have to be thankful and to be grateful for. And, and what's pretty amazing is that I feel like as we look at today's passage in chapter 17 of Luke, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 19, really I, I think that the the main thing Or the main idea, the main thing that I hope to challenge you with today is to live with gratitude for what Christ has done. To kind of give you the end at the very beginning, really that is the challenge and that is the goal. That is the goal is that you would simply pause, that you would slow down, that you wouldn't allow the chaos and the busyness of life to allow you to miss what God wants to do in your life and i'm pretty excited like i said it just kind of the way that the series fell these verses kind of fell just the following week after thanksgiving so it feels kind of appropriate that we just celebrated thanksgiving and this morning we are going to be talking in part about gratitude and that's again like i said the challenge that i really hope for you to hear in this And uh, what I want to do today is I want to kind of look at this text as a whole. We'll we'll kind of read the, the nine verses of it or so, and then we'll kind of come back and go verse by verse and really try and dive into this and pull out what it is that we can learn from this text. So we're going to go ahead and jump in. I'm going to read it right away. We'll jump into a prayer, and then we'll go for it. So this is what it says. You can follow along on the screen. You can follow along in your Bibles or in your Bible app if you want to do that. But it's Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. And this is what it says. It says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing through Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a asleep. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and to give praise to God except for this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity to, to just simply come into your presence that we as a people as a as a nation as a country we get this opportunity to to reflect on your goodness and that we get the opportunity to to read from your word and to be challenged by it and i pray that that's exactly what would happen today lord god that as i speak that it wouldn't be my words that are heard but father you would speak to your children and that you would challenge us in the areas that you desire to challenge us in and that you would encourage us in the areas that we need to be encouraged in Father, would your word be alive today and it would be active and would we receive all that you have for us? We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, I want to jump into this and kind of take it verse by verse because I think there's a lot that is happening in this passage that maybe we just don't fully get or we don't fully understand in today's modern era, and I'll even say modern medicine Context that leprosy, how how deeply it impacted, and what it meant for for those that lived with it, and and kind of the outcast that they became. And I want to jump into this and, and kind of talk through this because I think there's a lot, like I said, that these verses bring up that I want to I want to talk through. And as we jump into this, the very first verse kind of starts with geography, right? So. 11, or seven, chapter 17, verse 11, it says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So it, it's not really mentioned specifically. We'll see in the next verse that it doesn't list a specific town. But Jesus is passing kind of through Galilee and Samaria. It's kind of that border there. And, and what Jesus is doing is he is kind of traveling and ministering. This is, in essence, kind of a road trip that he is taking with his disciples where he is ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only is he ministering to, to those where we see healing and miracles taking place, he's talking about the kingdom. His disciples are learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And he is kind of on the road doing his ministry. And so much so to the point that in January, as we start the new year, we're we're calling kind of our sub-series Road Trip, because that's ultimately what Jesus is doing, is that he is on a road trip, kind of traveling from town to town, from place to place, ministering and talking about what the kingdom of heaven is like. By his birth, the kingdom of heaven had arrived here on earth, and he is ushering in that new kingdom and explaining what it is and what it means. But it's also important as we look at this that the author, Luke, of the book of Luke, as we know, if we if we remember all the way back towards the beginning, Luke is a doctor. He's a trained, educated physician. He is kind of doing this evangelistic journalism where he is kind of researching what is happening. He is looking to find kind of the truth of who Jesus was so that he can report to this Roman governor named Theophilus. And he's reporting so that Theophilus would have certainty of the things that he taught now i think when we get to verse 11 right here there's something that as as the uh the disciples as the 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 followers of jesus christ what they understood when they were writing this is that when they talk about jerusalem they are talking with the end in mind they already know what happens when jesus makes his way to jerusalem So when he mentions that he is on the way to Jerusalem, there is this actually building of what kind of happens when we finally get to chapters 19 and 20, where Jesus makes his way, and he's finally in Jerusalem. Now, the reality is that Jesus probably has been to Jerusalem many different times within his life, right? This was something that would be done yearly as, as, a, as a Jew, that would be kind of a, a pilgrimage, if you will, to the temple, to Jerusalem. So Jesus has probably been there many times. But when we look at the text and understand, Luke is writing this kind of with the future in mind, knowing how the next chapter kind of plays out. He's kind of a few steps ahead going, Jerusalem is the destination. And so as we think of this, it wasn't just some fun, exciting, like awesome road trip where at the end result you look back and go, well, man, that was pretty awesome. Well, it, it was that ultimately, but it wasn't before the agony of Christ's death on the cross. So I think it's important that we understand whenever any of the the new testament writers talk about jerusalem in a context where it's kind of like jesus is looking to jerusalem or is moving towards jerusalem this is not just a vacation where it's a fun road trip it's it's ultimately a death march because jesus is traveling and ministering and what jesus knows is that at the end of this this road trip there's a a suffering that he will have to endure there's a difficulty that he'll have to walk through and so he is going from town to town place to place ultimately leading to a place where he will ultimately give his life because the reason why he came was jerusalem it was to give his life as a ransom for many that was his purpose. that was what he said to do that's how his kingdom would be advanced uh, is that me is that i'm cracking is that bad or is it just bad in my mind Maybe it's just bad in my mind, like I feel like I, but all right, we'll keep, we'll keep going. If you don't know what I'm talking about, nothing happened, just, it, we'll edit that out, except we're live, so never mind. Um, so it's this death march that Jesus is kind of making his way to Jerusalem. And I think that's important for us to understand this road trip. And so we understand that where he is also is an important place or significant because Samaria was a location and a place where people, Jews specifically, would not travel to because of the hatreds that the Jews had towards Samaritans. Samaritans. It was Jews and Assyrians had intermarried, and now Jews looked at these Samaritans as kind of half-breeds. Like, they're not Jews, they don't have any belonging to what God has called them to, they're not real people, they're just kind of inferior beings. And they despised them so much that whenever they traveled, they would travel around Samaria rather than pass through. Jesus, as we've seen many times in his, his walking and his wanderings and his ministry, he is not afraid to go into Samaria where he ministers and he travels. And so he is, he is making his way through and he's traveling. Uh, verse 12 says this, And as he entered a village, not a specific village, just kind of a random one, he was met by ten lepers, Who stood at a distance. And I do want to kind of park here on this verse for a little bit because I think leprosy and lepers is something that we don't have all that much of an understanding about. But in that day, in that time, they would have had a a deep understanding and knowledge of what happened when someone had leprosy. or or when something that was considered to be leprosy was present on them or around their family, they would have very much understood. In fact, as you read through the New Testament, leprosy is mentioned about 40 different times. And while we don't really have a great context or understanding of what it is, because modern medicine helped provide a, a cure for that, they would have had a deep understanding because there was no cure in that day and age. Other than Jesus, which is kind of jumping to the end of the story, where Jesus heals, there was no man-made cure for leprosy. And not only did leprosy of involve what we understand, it's, it's Hansen's degree or Hansen's disease, is what we understand modern day leprosy as. Leprosy didn't just include kind of Hansen's disease, it also included all different types of skin diseases as well. So when somebody got leprosy, it, it could be just something, something small, like, well, small, it could be something that is, is common, something maybe like scabies. Maybe if I'm interpreting uh, Leviticus 13 correctly, it could even be something like possibly eczema that you could be considered leperous. And so there was this deep fear because if somebody was to re- contract or, or to get leprosy, whether that's Hansen's, uh, Hansen's disease or if that's just kind of some type of a skin disease, they would become an outcast. They didn't want to be an outcast, and there was very specific rules for what would have to happen for somebody to isolate or to quarantine or to, if they were kind of labeled as unclean, there was very specific steps that they had to follow that were outlined in Leviticus 13 and 14. And as I I wrote this, I just kind of thought to myself, What's the worst, and I'm not going to ask you to share, don't worry. Um, What's the worst skin kind of infection disease that you've ever experienced? Like, what's the worst that you've ever endured? For me, one of the things that I get really bad, like it wasn't this way until I was like 17 years old. Like I could wallow, I could roll around all that I wanted inside poison ivy, would never get it until I turned like 15, 16, 17. Somewhere in there, all of a sudden, I was fiercely allergic. I didn't even have to come into contact with poison ivy. I could just like breathe the air around it, and my arms would swell up the size of like honeydew, and I would like just secrete fluid from my arms. Sorry, that's really disgusting. I've done a lot of research this week about like diseases and leprosy, so I've got a lot of nasty images in my head that I'm trying to keep from you hearing about, so I apologize if any of that just leaks out there, okay? So like that was probably the worst skin disease I feel like that I've ever experienced, and even something like poison ivy could be considered, you would be considered unclean. You would have to go through these steps where you couldn't enter into the synagogue. You couldn't enter into a place of worship. You couldn't even be with your family. You had to isolate and be alone unless you were with other lepers. That was the way that this happened. And, and then there was another time in my life, probably, uh, probably the, the time where I was the, the sickest that I've ever been in my entire life. Uh, not to be dramatic, but it was probably the closest that I've ever came to death that I'm aware of. And it all stemmed from being bitten by a cat. Yeah, like, honestly, on the way to the hospital, one of the thoughts that I had, like, was going, Really? Was I really, am I really going to be done in by a cat? So it, it, I was house-sitting for, for a friend of the family, somebody that I had kind of done some work around her house and, and cared for uh, her property. She was a widow, and uh, she had gone out of town, so I was house-sitting, and she had this cat that was diabetic, all right? I didn't know that they made such things as diabetic cats, but there was a diabetic cat, and the cat needed insulin shots like twice a day. And so I I came over, we practiced giving shots, the cat didn't mind me, just kind of tolerated the shots, wasn't really a big deal, until about the second day of her journey where she was gone and I came in and the cat decided, I have no idea who you are. I want nothing to do with you, and so I, I have to give this cat its shot, otherwise the cat's going to die, and the cat caught me in just the right spot where he turned around, he bit me, and from that, I contracted cellulitis, which is a bacterial skin disease, if I understand correctly, right? And, and from that, what happened is that I developed a fever, um, I, a really high fever, like a, a, at, by the time I was going to the hospital, it was like 1046 um, I could not keep any fluids down. Like I was, I, I remember just kind of wreathing and writhing in pain and just agony of being so thirsty. I couldn't drink. It was like 24-hour period where I was trying the smallest bits of liquid, like just water, just ice chips, just trying to get anything into my system. So dehydrated, all from a cat. A cat. This is why I don't care for cats, all right? I have great reason because a cat almost killed me. And I remember it was so, it was the worst sickness that I've ever experienced, like to the point to where I remember, like on the way to the hospital, after thinking, am I really going to be done in by a cat? The next thought was going, Lord, if this is how you call me home, I don't really understand, but if, if that's your will, I, I guess, if that's what you want. And so I was at the hospital pretty much all day and kind of got fluids, and eventually was sent back on my way, and eventually it passed. But man, that was the craziest experience that I've ever had as far as feeling like I was near death and on some level almost even wanting it to just go away, the pain to just stop, for me to be able to to drink liquid, to not be so dehydrated, like it was just a terrible, terrible experience. And I say that to kind of give an understanding and illustration, that, that was just my experience over one weekend with cellulitis. Imagine being somebody that has Hansen's disease. We don't know much about it, but basically I wanna make sure that I get this right. It's a, a chronic infectious disease that affects the skin, um, it affects uh, the nerves, um, the mucous surface of the upper respiratory tract, and it also affects the eyes. And death isn't necessarily something that occurs, but what happens is as you lose feeling in your fingers, in your extremities, just by hitting stuff, by not feeling it, you can get infections and cuts. And ultimately, you could lose your extremities because of those infections and those cuts, because you lose feeling in your hands. And then to add on top of that, this social isolation that they felt, let me read to you what Leviticus 13 says. Forty-five through forty-six says, "This is what the instructions were given." And if you want a really interesting read, you can read Leviticus thirteen and fourteen, where it's kind of the instructions that uh, that God gives to the Levites on how to. Kind of see, understand, and how to uh, uh, deal with somebody with some type of leprosy or some type of skin disease. So it's an interesting read. It's a little bit hard to follow, but if you want to read it, go for it. But this is kind of the the highlights of that passage. This is what would happen if somebody is found to have some type of a defiling disease. It says this: anyone, again, Leviticus thirteen forty-five through forty-six. It's not on the screen. It says this: anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes. Let their hair be unkept. Cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. and They must live outside of the camp. So not only is there this physical implication for them, there's this also social implication. But then even to add on top of that, if they were in any type of a public area, they would have to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that people wouldn't accidentally come into contact with them. I think on some level over the last two years, most of us have some idea and understanding of what it means to have to isolate or to be kind of quarantined for a little bit, right? Imagine every day of your life, that is what it looks like. Imagine any time you went into public, you would have to cry out unclean. The humiliation and the embarrassment of that. The, the thought that when people saw you, they would scamper the other way because they didn't, want to do, they didn't want anything to do with you. They considered leprosy to be highly contagious. Whether it was or wasn't, they weren't really sure, but they considered it to be highly infectious and, and so that you wouldn't want to come close to them so they would kind of scamper and run the other way you would be disliked or even i dare say hated because you were looked at as unclean not just not just physically but spiritually too because what what they believed was that if you had received some type of infection or some type of leprosy then obviously god must be mad at you for some reason now, there is some Old Testament kind of uh, thoughts on that where, where God had done some things. But, but really, there's no proof for that. But that's the way that they saw you. When people saw lepers, lepers, they understood or they thought that they were the social outcast, that they were physically unclean, that they were morally unclean because God must have given this because of their sin and they wanted nothing to do with them. There's a, a website that I occasionally go to. It's called gotquestions.org. Great website if you're ever looking something up, if you have a question about something specifically in the Bible. They're a great resource I would encourage you to go to. And I want to read what they said. Um, just it says this. It says, God had given the Israelites very specific instructions on how to deal with leprosy and other skin infections. Anyone suspected of having this disease had the priest for examination. If found to be infected, the leperous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let their hair hair on his head hang loose, and shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. The leper was considered utterly unclean, physically and spiritually. Incurable by men, many believed that inflicted the curse of leprosy upon people for the sins they committed. In fact, those with leprosy were so despised and loathed that they were not allowed to live, uh, live in any community with their own people. Among the 61 defilements of ancient Jewish laws, leprosy was second only to, de- uh, to a dead body in seriousness. A leper wasn't allowed to come within six feet of any other human, including his own family. The disease was considered so revolting that a leper wasn't permitted to come within 150 feet of anyone when the wind was blowing. Lepers lived in a community with other lepers until they either got better or died. This was the only way that people knew how to contain the spread of leprosy, or of the contagious forms of leprosy. What I'm trying to do is paint a picture of what life must have been like for somebody in the Old Testament or in the New Testament in Bible times to have leprosy. There is no human cure. You were ostracized because you were considered morally unclean. You were considered socially unclean. You're considered spiritually unclean. And there's a physical, a mental, and, and a psychological toll that is on you. Like, it's just there's no escape from it. You almost become a prisoner in your own life. And that's what these men, these ten men who created some type of a leper colony, or or at least just kind of we're we're living together so that they would experience some type of community but all of them have this disease that is crippling that has removed them from their loved ones that they can't see that they can't be a part of the worship that is happening at the temple this would have been something that was devastating they would have been hated and despised. We, it's funny because I feel like as we go through Luke, what we see constantly, I think this is intentional on Luke's part, we see a lot of what society considered to be the outcasts. Jesus tends to spend a lot of time with them. Like we see this quite a bit that there's like the outcasts. Well, tax collectors were outcasts, Right. Women were, were disregarded, but Jesus spent time with them. Like, we see sinners. The Jewish people wanted nothing to do with sinners, but yet Jesus is spending time. Like, it almost seems like there's so many different people that were considered outcasts. You almost wonder, like, was everybody an outcast? Was there only one group? And the answer is yes. The Jews considered everyone else inferior to them. And so here we are, are with these ten lepers, probably hearing what Jesus has done. Again, Jesus is traveling. He's ministering. Word has gotten around. These lepers are desperate. They just want to return to their normal life. They just want to return to their friends, their families, their synagogue, their jobs. They just want any type of normalcy to come back. So can you imagine this excitement and anticipation as Jesus actually approaches this random town? probably far outside of the city because that's where they were supposed to be. Outside of the town, they don't approach. They shout to Jesus at a distance. There's a toll that happens there. It's interesting if, I probably did way too much research on this, honestly. Like, uh, by the time I got to here, I was like, I don't need to share any of this. It's just going to be a long, nasty, like, I was like, should I show pictures? No, I definitely shouldn't show pictures. I knew that by, like, the third picture. Like, okay, there's some scary images there, and I don't want to want to make anybody scared. But, like, uh, there was so much going on that there is such a, a, like, depth of understanding here that I think that we miss and we lack that it was so devastating. That is what I want you to hear. In fact, as in my research, one of the things that I came across is that there's a website, um, leprosy.org, and one of the questions that they asked on there is kind of a frequently asked questions, I guess, was this. Is it okay to use the word leper? And I just want you to read uh, from their perspective, a modern-day perspective, an understanding of why they don't believe that it's appropriate. This is what it says. It says, is it okay to use the word leper? They say, no. For centuries, leprosy has been viewed with horror, and the word leper has come to mean outcast. The word leper reinforces the already strong stigma against leprosy and contributes to the heartbreaking ostracism sufferers face. Using the word leper today is considered to be an offense to the hundreds of thousands affected by this disease. The terms person affected by leprosy and Hansen's disease are used instead. Again, this is something that we don't have very much knowledge of. According to the CDC, there's about 150 cases of leprosy, which is also the correct term is Hansen's degrees, in the United States each year, only 150. There's about 250,000 worldwide. Back in the 80s, there was 5.2 million cases of leprosy worldwide. Between 1994 and 2014, 16 million people were cured of leprosy. So we don't have much of an understanding of it, but it's something that when there was no cure, the Jewish people, the people in that town, in that area, they knew exactly what it was, and they did everything that they could to stay away from it. And so there's these men, these 10 lepers, who stood at a distance and continuing on. Verse 13 says this. It says, And as... He entered the village, just kind of going back to twelve, and as he entered a village, he was met by lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. What I think is almost so beautiful and also a little bit sad in this is that they recognized on some level who Jesus was. On some level, they are looking and hearing these stories and finally get this opportunity, and they recognize that Jesus is the master. He is a teacher. He is, he is the one that could bring them hope and healing. He is the one that has done some incredible things that people have talked about and continue to talk about, and so there is some hope that they can find in this person. But what's sad is that ultimately in this Other than the one leper that returns, they ultimately miss the true kingdom of heaven. What they actually could have experienced was not just a physical healing, but also spiritual awakening where they would have been made right before the the God of the universe. I'm kind of getting ahead and kind of sharing the end already, but I think that they understood and they recognized on some level who Jesus was. They called him master. Master. Desperately looking for a solution and looking for a cure to what they were enduring. Maybe it was because of the crowds, they stood at a distance. Maybe it was just because of this is what they had to do. They stood at a distance trying to get Jesus' attention, and they did. Again, I think it's beautiful. As Luke kind of writes, we see it specifically in his gospel more than any. Luke is kind of promoting this idea that Jesus was, was talking to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. The faith, ultimately, what we'll see of this Samaritan that returns back to thank Jesus, Luke is pointing out that it was a Samaritan, not most likely Jews, which we assume that the nine other were Jews who did not return back to thank Jesus. And so this this faith of a Gentile, somebody that is outside of, of the Jewish faith, somebody that is not really receiving the promises of God because they weren't God's elected chosen people, But what we see and understand is that through the cross, God made a way even for the Gentiles, and we could see it even in his ministry. I think that that is why Luke records this here, so that Theophilus, who most likely is a Gentile, he understands that Christ came for him. And so they call out, lift up their voices, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. In my mind, what I see when I kind of picture this is if you've ever been somewhere where there's like children present, but they have to like be seated in an auditorium or they're waiting for an opportunity, like if you've ever worked with children or see children and they want to volunteer for something, but they know they have to stay seated that they're like crazy, lifting up their hands, like, ooh, pick me, pick me. They're like squirming around in their seats. In my mind, that's what I picture these 10 lepers doing, like calling out to Jesus, like Jesus, please, I hope he picks me. Jesus, please, right here, right here. Like in my mind, that's what I visualize these 10 lepers doing because they were desperate. Man, they just wanted life to go back to normal. They just wanted to experience what they had maybe in the past or maybe experience it even for the very first time. And so continuing on, 14 says this, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And then I love this line. And as they went, they were cleansed in that time, in order to be cleansed, like, again, if you read Leviticus 13, you'll see that it's kind of like a weekly appearance, that if you had some type of infection, skin infection, you would go to the priest, he would examine it, and then you would go back in seven days, and they would examine it again and see if it had changed, or if it had gotten better or worse, and then there was again, certain things that if you were unclean, here's what you had to do, and then it would explain, if you weren't unclean, here's, you can kind of continue on with life. So, they would have been told to go see a priest because that priest would have given kind of the stamp of approval, if you will, to say that they were actually now considered clean, that they were healed, that the infection was going away or it was dissolved or it was gone or it would just been healed. But what's interesting is that all 10 of these lepers left before they had any type of proof that they were healed because it says on their way they were healed. I think that that speaks to something about the faith that these men had. These ten lepers were believing that if Jesus would just say the word, they could be healed. And so the moment that he does, they make their way to be obedient to what Jesus calls them to do, fully expecting a miracle. And I think that it's an interesting question and thought. I feel like we could probably preach a whole another lesson or another message on This activation of faith I think that there's something more that we could dive into there But I just think it's a beautiful picture That all ten men were willing to go And do what Jesus said Because they fully believed That God could heal them That Jesus could heal them Just by a word, just by speaking it out So Jesus was asking the men to respond in faith So that by their obedience What they desired would happen All the men responded in faith And Jesus healed them on the way And then on, verse 15, it says this. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, pleasing God with a loud voice. Most likely, he he goes to the priest. The priest says that he is clean. There would be some type of uh, sacrifice that would need to be made that they would be required to do according to law. And so maybe he makes that, or maybe he doesn't. I don't know. He was a Samaritan, so maybe he wasn't even allowed into the temple. Not really sure. It doesn't really explain much. But he sees that he's healed, and he goes back to thank Jesus, to praise him for what he's done. He's the only one of the ten that does this. And I think that it's, it's, it's interesting to note, and we'll kind of continue with this thought, that he's a Samaritan, as I've already kind of said. Like, he's a Samaritan, he's the only one that's kind of a foreigner, and he makes his way back to Jesus. But I think here's where we start to look and to see this idea of gratitude start to play out. I think so important is this: is this one one leper has this gratitude that he can't contain on some level. He could have probably just continued on with his day. In fact, I wondered if there was a a moment where the ten were all together and they probably saw the same priest. I don't know how exactly that worked, but on some level, did he choose to split away from the others? Did Did he see that the others weren't going back? He could have probably easily just gone, I don't need to go back. Jesus is just traveling through. He's not even parking in a location. I could probably just be on my way. But he wanted to praise to Jesus for what he had done. And here's what I wrote down. I said, every blessing that we receive should turn to praise blessing that we have, everything that we have to give thanks about, everything that we should be thanking God for, every blessing should turn to praise, because every blessing that doesn't turn to praise eventually turns to pride and I don't think any one of these men were, were wanting or looking or I think if you were to ask them, they would probably say that they were so grateful yet they didn't take the time to praise God for who he was and for what he had done just this one foreigner did everything that we have as believers we have to understand is a gift from God if you're not a believer if you don't prescribe to Christianity you're just here today maybe this is a part of the reason why you don't want to be a believer I I don't know but if we're believers we have to understand that everything that we have is a gift from God if we have giftings and talents and abilities it's because God gave us those gifts If we are successful, if we're healthy, I'll even say if we're not successful and if we're not healthy, even the the level of health that we do have is a gift from God. It's by grace that we exist. It's by grace that we take breaths each and every single moment of each and every single day. The things that you have are not just because you're really good or really smart or really intelligent. It's because God has given you grace and mercy. One of my favorite life verses, if you will, it's 1 Corinthians 15.10. The beginning of that verse says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's, that's Paul who's saying that, but I feel like that's, that's a verse that kind of describes me. I am what I am because of God's grace. It's the mercy, the love, the, the, everything that he gives me that I am able to do what I do. That I experience what I experience. It's all god's grace and so every blessing that we have that doesn't turn into praise ultimately turns into pride where we feel like we deserve it where we we've earned it and that's not it i think that this is this is where it gets so dangerous is that if we're not cautious this can creep into our spiritual life where it's almost like well god i've been really good so this thing that i've been praying for i think i should get We almost, if we're not careful, we can look at God as this kind of holy vending machine. I put in my my good works, I put in my prayer, I put in my time, and then therefore I get, and you can fill in the blank. So I think that praise is such a critical part of thanksgiving because what happens is that as we express the blessings that God gives to us, it doesn't turn into pride in our lives. We don't feel entitled to it. We're, we're open and confidently speaking about what God has done and what he's given to us and the gift that he bestows upon us. Uh, I I wrote this illustration down that I'm just kind of looking like I I remember back when my my brother uh, and my my niece my niece was young I remember they came for a visit and it was right around the age I'm not sure exactly I think I want to say that she was four years old at the time Uh, and my brother was like trying to teach this idea of being grateful and gratitude and I remember he would always say what do you say thank you like everybody if you've probably been around kids you've seen this stage of life like Trying to teach gratitude and why are you trying to teach gratitude so that when they're older now that my niece is about to turn 13 so that she doesn't come across as entitled nobody wants their son or daughter to come across as entitled like for example if if you have a son or daughter let's just kind of use this as an illustration if you have a son or daughter that we'll just say wants the uh, we'll say it's a son and they want the most uh, the newest video game for Christmas or their birthday right like if your your son asks for this, you're going, "Hey, you know the birthday's coming up, Christmas is coming up. You're a good dad or mom. You want to give them this gift. You decide to give them that." And then the day comes, if they open up that present and go, "Better have." I'm not sure how you would respond. But I'll tell you what I would do. I would take that back and be like, "Oh, I'm sorry, son. That's not actually your gift. That's Daddy's gift." Your gift is you can watch daddy open this up and play his brand new shiny video game. That's the gift that you get, right? Like, why? Because what happens is that being ungrateful turns off this, uh, turns off generosity, right? Like, you want to give your son, your daughter good gifts, but if they are ungrateful, you're not so much interested in giving them good gifts because if they feel entitled and ungrateful... Mm, It just has a way of shutting off generosity I think that we have to be careful that we Don't live in such a way that we don't express our gratitude and our thanks to god I think that we need to allow our our praise or, Or we need to allow our blessings to turn into praise so that they don't turn into pride So that we don't come across as being entitled and Greed is a very difficult thing to see It's very hard to to see and to identify and to recognize. It's easier to recognize I'm mad or I'm sad or I'm upset. But for you to recognize that you're ungrateful, it's a little bit of a blind spot for all of us. Because the first thing that we would think of is all the ways that we are grateful and thankful for X, Y, and Z. Continuing on, uh, verse 16 says this. It says, Then one of them, uh, actually let me reread 15 because it kind of flows into 16. 15 says this, uh, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. I already kind of mentioned this, that out of the 10 that were healed, only one returns back. And I think the reality is, is that it would be easy to look at the story and go, man, those nine were silly. They just were stupid. They didn't do the right thing. I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to say stupid, especially around my my niece and nephew. Sorry. Um, But like, they didn't do the right thing. We can easily dismiss them and just kind of say that they they were ungrateful and they didn't deserve it. But I don't think that that's the reality. I think that if you were able to go back and talk to them, I think that all nine of them would gush at how thankful and grateful they were to Jesus to have his life back. I think all of them on some level would be grateful, but the problem is is that they didn't express that gratefulness. They didn't communicate it. They didn't come back and thank Jesus for it, so what happens is that they, by not saying it, it didn't exist. And I think that that's important for us. I think that's important for me because the reality is that I like to to do things. I think that busyness so often gets in the way uh, of being grateful and thankful, because what happens is that I am grateful or thankful, but I don't take the time to recognize what Christ has done or what others have done, because I'm on to the next thing. That busyness creates this cycle where I go, thank you, and I just keep moving. But I think if we do that, if we really don't express our thanks then it really doesn't exist. And the example that I would use, some of you maybe even experienced it this past week, is is like a meal time. If you have prepared a meal for your family, it takes them a while to get there, but they they sit down, you've spent hours cooking this meal, they kind of eat it, it's so good that they just kind of devour it, and then they're off going on to doing everything else that they want. And they didn't say thank you for that meal, you feel like they were ungrateful, Right? if you are maybe your family's ATM, where they just keep taking your family, whether it's wife, husband, children, dogs, animals, like, it doesn't keep taking money upon money upon money upon money, like, without there being some type of communication of thanks, man, it feels like they're really ungrateful, right? But I think if we were to ask your family, they would probably go, no, 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 you don't understand, my mom makes the best I don't know, green bean casserole. I don't understand green bean casserole, but that's a different story. Like my mom makes the best green bean casserole or the best, um, I don't know, homemade uh, cranberry sauce or my dad, man, he is so, so good. He gives me everything that I need for my school outings and events and trips. And I was able to get this because of his general. Like if we were to ask, your family would probably express gratitude, but because they didn't express gratitude to you, it comes across as being Ungrateful. And what I'm trying to kind of explain here is this truth that unexpressed gratitude communicates ingratitude. They felt it, they just didn't express it at all. And if it's not expressed, then it doesn't exist. I think for us as believers, we have to express our gratitude to God. Not just on one day of the year where we pause and say, thank you, Jesus, for all the things that you've done, but every day of our lives living in such a way that we are grateful for the things that God has done and for how he's moved and worked within our lives. Uh, Continuing on, uh, uh, actually, let me read this. It says, uh, we can't allow our busyness or excitement for what is to come stop us from expressing our thanks. We have to be mindful of that. Then, continuing on, we've got three more verses, and I'll I'll start to wrap it up here. It says this, then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And again, at 16, it says that he was a Samaritan and then this foreigner. Luke is doing an intentional thing where he's trying to pull out this example of this Gentiles, like his incredible faith that he has in this moment. That Jesus had come for the Jews. They were his elect chosen people. But also Jesus was ministering and the Gentiles were receiving it to where the Jews were rejecting it. This kind of fits the pattern of what we've seen where the Jews were rejecting the ministry of Jesus Christ, but the Gentiles were starting to experience and to get excited about what God was doing because now they could be included in the things of God, the kingdom of God. And the Jews hated and despised Samaritans, but this Samaritan is the ultimate example for us in this. And in that, not only did he experience physical healing, but he also experiences spiritual healing. Not only is his body made right, but his soul is also made right. Because this next verse, 19, says this, And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. That word for well there is, if if I'm pronouncing this right, it's sozo, and it means to save. Specifically, properly, uh, it means to deliver out of danger and into safety. It's used principally of God rescuing believers from the penalty and the power of sin and into his provision and safety. So not only did he experience a physical healing, but he also experiences this spiritual awakening where he is, he is saved from his sin and he's saved from the danger that and placed into the fold of God's chosen and elect people. Maybe not by by heritage. He's, he's not a Jew. He's still a Gentile. But ultimately, the kingdom of God is for Gentiles just like us. And so he's saved, not just because he is physically healed and he can return to life, but he's saved because God now, he now has thanked God and God has saved him spiritually. It's not just a f- physical restoration, but a spiritual restoration as well. Jesus wasn't so much concerned about being thanked as he was about the men's understanding of what was happening. The other nine went off free from leprosy, but not necessarily free from sin through the salvation that Jesus could offer. This one man was free, so Jesus sent him on his way with the knowledge that his faith had made him well. He not only had a restored body, his soul had been restored as well. So today, as we close, I feel like, I want to go ahead and call the worship team up um, to to go ahead and prepare. One of the things that I think is so important for us as we start Advent, as we kind of look next week as we start our Christmas series, uh, what I really want to challenge and encourage you to do is to take this idea of gratitude and thanksgiving and don't just simply forget it. (laughs) I grew up in a household where where my mom was always, like, she she would get a little bit disappointed when, you know, department stores would go from, like, Halloween directly to uh, Christmas because she's like, there's another holiday in there. In fact, I have to be honest, when Christian's up here talking about Christmas stuff, I wanted to ask him what he did to celebrate Thanksgiving, all right, because that's important. But I think that it's important for us to understand and to have this gratitude and thanksgiving for what Jesus has done. Again, not because it's some holiday and we we kind of set aside a day to eat turkey and stuff our face and watch football and parades. Not because of that, but just because we need to be thankful. And this passage here in Luke 17 reminds us why we should be thankful, because we have the opportunity to be healed physically, but also we get this opportunity to spiritually be restored. So my challenge for us today is as we go into the season as we celebrate what Christ has done That we would be mindful of what he's done That we would slow down and not let our pace and our busyness Kind of lead us to a place where our blessings turn to pride because we don't allow them to turn to praise The challenge is that we would express our thanks Because we don't want our thanks to just kind of go unnoticed because unexpressed Thanks is, is ingratitude So my challenge for us is that we would live in a way that we would receive what God has for us, both spiritually and physically. Unexpressed gratitude communicates ingratitude. We we need to feel it, and not just feel it, but express it, because when it's not expressed, it doesn't exist. So that is my challenge for us as we look at this passage. God was doing some incredible things as he was, or Jesus was doing some incredible things as he, as he traveled and ministered. And this is just one of the ways that we need to understand how gratitude plays a big part in a believer's life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for each and every single person that is here. Lord, I pray that we would be just full of gratitude and thanksgiving for what you've done and how you've moved and worked. Lord, as we go into this last song, would we use this as an opportunity of praise? Lord, I thank you for artists and for people that are more gifted than I in creating and crafting words that I can simply express my gratitude and my thanks to you. Lord, would we do that in honor of you? We thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing our final song? Thank you. to thank you all so much for coming and to be a part. I just want to challenge you again that unexpressed gratitude communicates ingratitude and really every blessing that doesn't turn into praise turns into pride. And my challenge for you in this season, in this time, in this next month, but even more than that, your entire life, I would challenge you to express praise and thanks for what God has done, for what others do around you. And I think the reality is, is that Gratitude has a way of changing everything, even when nothing changes. So I hope that you have a great week, that you are blessed. We will see you again on Tuesday if you're interested in being part of Overtime. If not, we hope to see you next week as we start our Christmas checklist series. Thanks for coming, everyone. Have a great week.
1: them all further in-